Hello once again, everybody. Welcome to After Further Review with Mark Ferreira and John Pelkey, our producer Jeff Taylor, with us as well for something a little different today, Mark Ferreira. Normally, we delve into whatever the stories of the day are, or we try to make some up because the stories of the day have literally been the same since we've started this. Will baseball start or not? Um, when, when will football start? Uh uh, should Mike Gundy be fired or perhaps even eliminated? I mean, all of these stories tend to be the same. Uh, so we thought maybe we should combine. And now, you didn't say it this way. This was this was your idea. I slapped down yet about a dozen. I took ten off the board immediately. Uh, and then uh, we, we babbled between a couple of others. But what I finally thought about is this combines two things that you and I love. And that is sports, in today's case baseball, and history. We are much more, I, I would say, I am much more interested in the history of the sport than I am the here and now most of the time. Now, part sure. of that is because my team, the Baltimore Orioles, suck. And, yeah, I pull for the Washington Nationals because I grew up in the D.C. area, but they weren't there. But I, beyond that, baseball in the, uh, as, a, as, a, as a macro sport is the most interesting to talk about. And when you have full seasons, or in the case of this podcast today several seasons to deal with it, it the information that you can glean talk about joke about stuff that'll surprise you is endless it it is endless john which is why we love the baseballreference.com which i'm th- i'm sure Greatest you uh, i'm sure you spent some time on, on that yes, site in in uh, in terms of the research but because you can link to the team link to a game link to a series, link to another manager, and then link. Because of that, baseball does really, they talk about the the coaching trees in the NFL, the trees that come out of every season in Major League Baseball and every franchise and every Major League Baseball to to, to the case today. We're speaking about a franchise in in a very specific time uh, 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 of, of history. It's amazing the branches, the trees, the roots that you can go to. And and, and I, I would think that one of the hardest things you had to do in this deep dive is to decide what to talk about because there's probably so much. Like edit it down to an hour and a half must have been right. the hardest part. Yeah, it was really, really difficult. And because of that, I'm not going to go into – we should let everybody know in case you're, you're not a, a, a frequent listener. If you're new, welcome. Uh, just again, this is going to be a little different show than we normally do. But uh, what we're going to be talking about today is the 1970s Oakland A's. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. I think that the team that won three consecutive World Series, 72, 73, 74, is largely forgotten by um, uh, baseball fans. And in fact, Mark, I would I would think that most baseball fans, when you say the Oakland A's, think of probably two things at this point. Moneyball, obviously the terrific movie, which my wife cannot understand why I will watch it every single time it's on and calls it the most boring thing she's ever seen. Um or uh, the famous uh, 1988 World Series, uh, which they should have won and lost. Um, they went to three consecutive. But people don't really go back and talk about the early 70s A's. We're going to talk about them for a couple of reasons. First of all, I was eight years old in 1972. And that's really when I think most of us agree your sports fandom really kicks in. Seven, eight years old. So they're the first team that I remembered. One of the seminal members of that team, Catfish Hunter, was the first Major League Baseball player I ever met. Um, in fact, in my closet right now on a shelf is a stuffed 
baseball head wearing a Yankee hat with eyes, looks like a little baseball as a man, uh, signed by Catfish Hunter, and they were made by his mother. Uh, because I have relatives in Hertford, North Carolina, where Catfish Hunter is from. You, of course, are from the Bay Area. You were you were in your early 30s uh, when the team won. Now, you were, what, 12 in 1972? I was 12. Uh, yeah, at the World Series, I was 12. But I was so, 11 for most of that year. But, yeah, right. I was I was right in the pocket of fans. So that is, I mean, that's when not only are you now a fan, but you, you're starting to understand even the finer points of the game. You know what oh, you're yeah. looking at now. Um, and we, they're just a fascinating team for so many reasons. So what we're going to do today, and this is this is an experiment, is uh, we're going to do a little. Uh, I was calling it a deep dive, but to the point we just talked about, it's it's essentially a shallow dive when you if you were if you were to follow all of the to to your point all the branches of these trees, we would be here. You know, it would be longer than a Merchant Ivory film. Uh, yeah, maybe it, more entertaining. It would be a Ken Burns film. miniseries. It would be a yeah. Ken Burns miniseries. Yeah, and they get the short shrift in that as well because I went back and and uh, watched it, and they give a little bit of love to Charles fin- to Charlie Finley, uh, the manager, and uh, excuse me, the owner uh, and general manager, um, mainly because he was at 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 the same time an enormous pain in the ass to everyone and everything at all times, and also an innovator. Um, and then they talk a little bit about Catfish Hunter and that team winning uh, three consecutive World Series. In fact, the only team not called the New York Yankees that have ever done that uh, win three consecutive World Series. Um, but they just uh, they got so much less love than teams that, that that didn't have that sort of success. So we thought we'd talk about them a little. So we're going to just we're going to plow into this, Mark. Uh, I, I'm going to need your help. Uh, ask only questions I know the answer to. All right, so that's, I'll do my so that's best. You have to. You have no idea what I'm going to talk about, but I, I expect you to read my mind and ask only questions that uh, that I can answer. So let's start a little bit of the history of the Oakland A's, Mark. Great, I can't wait. Started out in Philadelphia in 1901. Between 1901 and 1954, they went to eight World Series and won five of them. 1910, 11, 13, 29, and 30. They were the first team to win consecutive World Series more than once in Major League Baseball. So that's relatively interesting. Had a good deal of success under their manager, Connie Mack, who was born a week before the Battle of Fredericksburg. We'll talk about him in just a minute. There's your Civil War reference. It may not be the last. Um, then they moved to Kansas City. Now, this is probably where you were first aware of the A's, Mark, in Kansas City, because they moved there. No, and all truthfully, because they were there from 55 to 67. So when you started watching baseball, I, it, I wasn't I, I didn't start that early. I oh, really? I was. No, I because that would have been six years old, basically, for me at that point in time. And uh, 67, 68. So that fall was my second grade year. And I was much more into president cards, as we've talked about. And uh, nerd the, alert. Then yes, then I was baseball cards. The uh, it, it was problematic for me on on the block I grew up on. Oh, I can only I, imagine. I was I was a, a wimpy short kid. That's why I developed speed, John Pelkey. We've talked about this, and I was into the presidents as opposed to baseball as a, as a seven and eight year old. So I didn't. I was not aware really of Kansas City until later when I just looked at the history of the A's. Okay. The the bloody dangerous streets of Northern California where you grew up, Mark, and I know upper middle class. Good lord. <laughs> Please, 
It was tough. Was like, it was tough. It was tough out there. It was when tough I'm out there John, on the street. Taylor card, and it's like, yeah, hey, what about Ken Holtzman? All right. So in the move to uh, Kansas City in 1955 through 1967, never, never did the team make it to the postseason. Never finished better than sixth in the American League in that whole period of time. Just uh, n- not a particularly great period for the A's. Moved to Oakland in, in 1967, and. Uh, as we mentioned, won three consecutive World Series, 72, 73, 74. Actually went to five consecutive playoffs. Um, 71, they lose the American League Championship Series to the Baltimore Orioles. And in 75, they lose it to the Boston Red Sox. Um, so that's that's the overview history of the Oakland A's. Uh, they, an interesting thing about it, Mark, is they moved to Oakland because Charlie Finley, who was their owner, we'll talk about him again more in a bit, didn't like uh, the uh, attendance in Kansas City, didn't think that, you know, thought, if I can just get out to Oakland, they'll be much more successful. But we talked about this on the last show. They never drew, during this period of time, they never drew a million fans. There are a million fans a season recorded, but in all the research I've done, and and I tell you what, I read a really terrific book called Dynastic, Bombastic, and Fantastic. It is the history of the A's by Jason Turnbow. He talks about the fact that they papered those numbers a lot. They were probably only getting 800,000 people with a championship caliber team. It's that's remarkable. That's and just I, remarkable. I, well, and for everybody who talks about baseball and that baseball yeah. is not healthy, that is absolutely ridiculous. And the stadium, it was not a tiny stadium. Oakland uh, Coliseum held 35, 36,000 people at that time. So there were smaller stadiums in Major League Baseball and teams drew much better than that. But he didn't really have that success in Oakland with attendance. But he certainly had that. Uh, success with the team. I want to jump back to Connie Mack, Mark. Let's talk about Connie Mack for a minute. Connie Mack spent 10 years in Major League Baseball starting in 1886. Now, he went on to be the longest tenured manager. As a player. As a player. player. 10 years years as a player. Uh, He went on to be the the winningest uh, manager of all time. Now, Mark, I'm just going to let you guess. I'm going to ask you a question here. Yeah. What position do you think the man who had the most wins at manager played when he was in major league baseball well i would guess catcher he was a catcher that's absolutely correct catchers and second baseman yep the odd up. shortstop here and there but up, up the, the middle, middle. that's it and and you know handling pitchers and everything but anyway so connie mack in case you're keeping score at home and i'm not sure why you would do that but hey have at it uh 3731 career wins that's more. That's over a thousand more than the guy in second place. Uh, Thirty-nine hundred and forty-eight losses. So he was two hundred games under five hundred in that period of time, and he managed seven thousand seven hundred and fifty-five games. He managed the A's for fifty years, which is remarkable. And I don't know if you're going to get into this, but what I love about Connie Mack is he wasn't he basically the owner as well for, for a yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah. And and so what he did, you talked about that early success in the teens that they had. They won three out of four, whatever it was, um, as the Philadelphia A's in between 1910 and 1920, I think is what I, I, I heard you say. 1910 and 1930, they won uh, a five-world well, series, actually. Three right, world but, series, 10, 11, and 13, yeah, three and four years. And they didn't win again for 16 years. right. And that's the thing, is that he had, in a way, the Marlins theory back in the day. 
You, 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 you stole my thunder. That's exactly I'm, where I was going with that. And well done out of you. Yeah, people who complain about the Marlins, Connie Mack is considered this genius of baseball. And because he was in a smaller market in Philadelphia, uh, just did not have the financial resources, um, he had to do what the Marlins did, which was build up a great team and then slowly sell off his stars. And he was able to do that and win three World Series in four years and then dismantle the team and rebuilt. And to your point, it took him uh, a solid 18 years to win, excuse me, 15 years, 16 years, to uh, from 1913 to uh, 1929 to build that team back up again. That will never happen again because no one would be allowed to do that. Well, and it's the same manager. Can you imagine a, a manager's be, being allowed to just even ma- not even not even an owner slash manager, just a manager that would be allowed to slog through sixteen years of not just mediocrity, but but horrificness, and un, until you're able to build your team back up again. And I think did he have Jimmy Fox in that first then that next run? He did. He did have Jimmy Fox. Double X. There's a boy. Talk about a deep dive guy who's forgotten. And folks, keep take notes during all of this and, and Google some of this, because there are guys on this seven, the 70s, 80s teams, Mark, that we're, we're hardly going to get into who were stars. Sal Bando it might get a mention here and there. But go back and look up Jimmy Fox as well. Just just remarkable with uh, with a, a, a guy like Connie Mack. Um, what he what he saw throughout his lifetime, again, taking his first at bat in 1886 and managing his last game in 1950. See, that's it, just phenomenal. it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And, and then his grandson was a U.S. senator out of Florida, correct? He was. He was. I actually have a personal story out of meeting his great grandson, uh, bought a suit for me to go for his father's uh, swearing in probably Long a Republican. Story. We would embrace wholeheartedly these days. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure we would. Uh, all right. So there's, there's the basic history of the A's before they're purchased in 1960 by Charles Finley. Charlie Finley was a character of epic proportions. Um, he may single-handedly be the reason there's a designated hitter. He advocated for that long before, uh, anybody else uh, bought into it? His team was in the very first, played the very first season, his championship team, '73, very first season of the designated hitter. No DH in the World Series that year. And there's an interesting story to that when we get to the '73 World Series. Um, some of the things that Charlie Finley uh, did, uh, in addition to uh, advocating for the designated hitter, was he advocated for orange baseballs. He argued that people couldn't see the baseball very well, and that an orange baseball would make that. Uh, <laughs> would make that better. They actually, in a couple of spring training games, they used the orange baseball. Um, just your thoughts on your baseball. This just reminds me of, and, and Jeff will remember this when uh, I think it was Fox was doing hockey and they had to put the trailer thing on the puck because the argument was nobody could ever see the puck and right. they put this little tail trailer on it. Orange baseballs, though. Just, you know, at the at the time, I thought. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm a kid, so I'm I'm just sort of learning the game. And, and everything that Charlie Finley did was out of the box, including the DH, which obviously took. But the orange baseballs, it was just it was just one more, you know, wacky idea. And, you know, back in that day, you don't really judge things as a kid. You just go, OK, let's see. Let, let's let's see the orange baseballs. It's kind of fun to see them. You know sure. what I mean? As a child. And it, and it was like you know, all the funny and you'll get to the hair and the and the facial hair and everything else that he allowed. And uh, it just seemed like that was the guy. And, you know, who could who who could undermine any of his judgment when this team on the field is winning like they were? 
he had a rabbit, a mechanical rabbit that would pop up uh, with baseballs in it for the for the umpires to go over and pick the baseballs out of that, as opposed to having someone run out of the dugout with them. He had a mechanical rabbit that he named Harvey. IMDB it, people. Um, <laughs> yes, because I'm afraid a lot of people won't know. He also instituted the live mule. Uh, which he named Charlie O, sure. and it was starting in Kansas City. The live mule, Charlie O, was uh, the mascot of the team. Prior to that, the mascot of the athletics had been a, 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 an elephant. So I think we, we give Charlie credit for not trying to squeeze an elephant into the stadium for games. Might have been an issue. Um, on, on a sidebar, uh, the live mule lived a good life and passed away in 1976. So please, no animals were harmed in the making of this deep dive show. I, I, I was going to ask about that question. How long did Charlie O live? Until 1976. All right, fair I, enough. I'm not sure the average life of a mule, but seemingly he had a pretty good run. And, and many people would argue that Charlie Finley treated Charlie O, the mule, much better than he treated any of his players. And, and how many mules really get to spend half their life in Kansas City and half their life on the West Coast? I would say one. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably it. That's, that's, that's uh, unless it was a mule carrying pioneers back in 1849. Right. But let's not get off on that track. See, here's another. <laughs> here, here's where we can go. Uh, also, Charlie Finley, two things. Mark uh, talked about it before. He paid his players to grow out their facial hair at a time where that was just not the thing to do. Teams were clean shaven. And in fact, by the 72 series, when they had the mustache, Raleigh Fingers, Catfish Hunter, Joe Rudy, Sal Bando, I mean, they were all uh, you know heavily mustached team Gene Tennis. Um, uh, Sparky Anderson, who oddly, folks, here's something. When the... Uh, when the Cincinnati Reds won their first, uh, won the World Series in 1975, uh, Sparky Anderson was younger than Tom Brady is today, and looks 20 years older. Well, I tell you, managing in baseball will take a toll. So we, well, used to, he, he looked well, 70 his whole life. He did. He's the Abe Vigoda of managers. I think. I think everyone would agree. There's no doubt about that. We'll get into that in my deep dive, which talks about the big red machine next week. Oh, I thought you were going to say it talks about Abe Vigoda. <laughs> You're going to jump into fish. Uh, uh, from Barney Miller. Um, but anyway, you know, that was something that he that he did that was different. Also, the uniforms, if you look back at those A's uniforms, the, the pullover top, the, the A's were the first team to do that without the button-up tops. And then the, the bright yellow, bright green, bright gold, shocking white. Oh, they, they were, you, you couldn't miss them. You could not miss them. It, and everyone said it was a gimmick. And then he put the best team in baseball on the field for for all of those years. And it turned out to be just kind of an extra thing that set them apart. I have one more. And by the way, bought the team in 60, moved them to Oakland in 1968. I have one more anecdote, Mark. And if you were not doing the show with me, I would not have this anecdote into the show. In 1964, Charles Finley wanted to bring the Beatles to Kansas City. Um. The night sixty, their first major tour of of the states, and they were not uh, they were not scheduled to, to go to Kansas City. So he reached out to Beatles manager Brian Epstein, and said, "You know, the seventeenth of September, you don't have a concert. I'd like to pay you to come and and have the Beatles play in uh, Kansas City." And that was the the Beatles' off day in, uh, and they were going to be in New Orleans. And if you're going to have an off day, eh, New Orleans is not a bad place to do it. Uh, and so Epstein balked because, you know, the, the boys were working hard back then. You know, for they were they 30 were minute, their 30 minute concerts. Uh, they were they were just killing themselves in those 30 minute concerts. But uh, Finley prevailed by paying the Beatles the most ever at the time for one show. So on September 17th, 1964, I'm a mere two and a half months old at this point in time. 
You may have been at the show. Uh, he paid the Beatles $150,000 for one show. Yeah, 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 in Kansas uh, City. They, they made almost $5,000 a minute for playing in that show. And John Lennon said afterwards that he didn't care for Charles Finley because he was trying to – got to give Charlie Finley credit for this. He's trying to get the Beatles to play longer. He's like, hey, we dropped 150 grand on you. Why don't you throw in a couple more? I mean, let Ringo sing one. No one will care. Come on. Uh, but they didn't. They did their 30-minute set. But I thought that was really interesting. I did not know that story. You were nodding along. Seemingly, you knew that story. I did know that story, believe it or not. I Because I did a, you know, again, I did a deep dive on Charlie Finley at one point in time and took one link to another link to another link. And suddenly, here's this story about 1964 and the Beatles and wedging that in. And, you know, it's a whole, whole different deep dive about the Beatles because they, you know, they did work extremely oh, course, hard yeah. at that but point. But concerts then were much different. You didn't play for an extended period of time. No. Um, yeah. That didn't really until about 1969 concerts, 68, 69, then the longer concert came up. But uh, So anybody in Kansas City who got to see the Beatles in 64, who's listening to this show, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the numbers are enormous. Uh, you you got to thank Charlie Finley for that. Yep. Though four years later, he dragged the team out of uh, three and a half years later, really dragged the team out of Kansas City and sent them to Oakland. All right. So we're going to jump forward a little bit, Mark, uh, to 1971, because at this point, they've been in Oakland since the 68 season um, and they have gathered together a great group of baseball players at this yep. at this point. Um, they had the pitching staff with Hunter, uh, Catfish Hunter, Vita Blue, Blue Moon Odom. What uh, was just terrific. They'll pick up Ken Holtzman in a bit as well to add to that staff. But 1971, they win 101 games, and they make it to the American League Championship Series, uh, where they run into the buzzsaw of the Baltimore Orioles on their way to their third consecutive World Series, and uh, and they lose three to nothing. So the old taste of success. I brought up Vita Blue. In that season of 71, Vita Blue's finest season as a pitcher, he won 24 games. He became the first African-American to win the American League Cy Young Award, and he became the youngest American League player in the 20th century to win the MVP. Yeah, so Cy Young and MVP, and um, it was, yeah, it was a remarkable season for Vita Blue the entire time. You know, he, he never had a drop off in, in, in 1971, I should say. He, he did the next year, obviously. But, uh, yeah, what a run he was on. And, and, they, and they ran into Baltimore, and they were eliminated in three straight games. And the Giants, actually, across the bay, won, this, won the division as well. So both teams were in the playoffs. And back then, there were only four teams that made the playoffs. Right. And, and both teams got eliminated, the Giants in four games the uh, the A's in three, and, you know, it set up a, a Pittsburgh-Baltimore World Series. Could have had a all-California World Series three years before that actually did happen in 1974, right. uh, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. So the 71 season, obviously, the, people realized that the A's were, were here to stay, at least for a while. One of the big reasons is their manager, Dick Williams. It should be pointed out that prior to Dick Williams coming on as the manager of the A's in 1971, he was best known for his first season with the Boston Red Sox in the miracle season of 67, when they were a team that I believe had finished sixth in the American League the year before, and they had that ridiculously remarkable season in which Carl Yastrzemski maybe had the best 
two and a half to three months a player's ever had at the end of that season. But Dick Williams was the manager of that team, um, fired after the 69 season, which I believe uh, was more political than it was anything about the success of the team on the field, though they had fallen off a little bit. But he takes over the A's in 71. He will become the very first manager for Charles Finley that lasted more than two seasons, that lasted to a third season, I should say, as as manager. He won't get to a fourth. We'll get to that in just a bit. But just to think about Dick Williams, 21 years managing. He had those years with Boston and got to a World Series. Then he wins a couple with the A's, um, then goes on to manage the Angels, the Expos, the Padres, and the Mariners. We're going to skip ahead in our discussion just a little to talk about Dick Williams. When he left the A's uh, in ni- after the 1973 World Series, he was number one. He was the number one target of the New York Yankees. And uh, unfortunately, Charles Finley, who was uh, a uh, well, he held a grudge. Let's just say Charlie Finley could hold a grudge. He prevented Dick Williams from getting the Yankee job. How did he do that? Um, because Williams had quit and he still was under contract to Charlie Finley and Finley had control of where Williams could go. He could sell him to somebody uh, or he had to have Williams wait out his contract. Um, Bowie Kuhn sided with ownership because slave master. Um, and uh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you here. So he didn't pay Dick Williams, but he had control of Dick Williams. He had control of him because Williams had quit on his contract. And I guess the contract uh, he could quit and not manage, but he wasn't going to get paid and he couldn't go anywhere else unless Charlie Finley let him go there. So Dick Williams actually uh, managed with the Angels in 74. He should have been the manager of the New York Yankees. The Yankees tried everything they could, and really the only reason, they offered Finley even more than his good friend Gene Autry offered him to take over. But uh, Finley did not want Williams to go where Williams wanted to go. So the interesting dichotomy, or the interesting story there is that Dick Williams may have been the manager of the 77, 70, 76, 77, 78 New York Yankees. Instead, it's Billy Martin, who, oh, by the way, Dick Williams is about to see in the American League Championship Series in 1972. So that's Dick Williams. Uh, look him up. What a great time in baseball. When Charlie Finley plucked him out of uh, to, to be the manager of the uh, A's, he was, a, he was a bench coach or third base coach for the uh, Montreal Expos at that point in time and uh, came back to manage the A's. All right, so let's jump forward to 1972. Any okay. questions, Mark? You seem like you have some questions. Uh, no, I just want to add one more tidbit for, for Dick Williams, and that is, I believe, when he was with the Expos, this may not be right, but he may have been a uh, manager when they did get to their only postseason series. Yes. And he was the manager of, oh, by the way, the San Diego Padres right. that got to the World Series against the Detroit Tigers in 1984 and came back from two games down to beat the Chicago Cubs in the NLCS. So he he had a s- remarkable record, kind of like Billy Martin, of taking bad teams and right. turning them around quickly and then, you know, uh, exhausting their, you know, their their run or their their, um, uh, you know, you're exhausting your um, 
your stay. You know what it is. Okay. People, yeah. Out, out, outlasting your usefulness or something. Whatever of that it is. Nature. Yeah, yeah. Quickly, they they get they get shoved on, and and Billy Martin was the same way. And uh, but Dick Williams, you know, four different teams turned around, brought to the playoffs. So that just a remarkable. I mean, he should be a Hall of Famer. I'm not sure he is, but he should be. Right, and he wins his first World Series over Sparky Anderson and the Reds, and then loses the last World Series he manages to Sparky Anderson and the Tigers. So again, just all of these things are wrapped up together. So we move on to 1972. Again, this first season, I remember watching baseball. Uh, I had met Catfish Hunter in the, the, the summer prior, or um, the fall prior. Anyway, I, I'd met Catfish Hunter at this point in time. So the A's win 93 games, 93 and 62. They... Uh, they beat the White Sox. They finished ahead of the White Sox by five and a half games. Interesting thing about that is Charlie Finley only went to A's games in Chicago because he never moved to Oakland. And uh, was another another reason he was not particularly well liked. Um, he was cheap. He was vain, glorious. He wanted all the credit. Um, but he also just never seemed to for the Oakland fans, never seemed to be a guy who uh, who was invested in it. Um, anyway, in the offseason, I mentioned it earlier, Ken Holtzman comes in as a pitcher. It was a trade with the Cubs for Rick Monday. At the time, not a popular trade um, for A's fans. But uh, Holtzman will come in, and he will uh, he will be incredibly successful. So they move on to play in the American League Championship Series, as mentioned, the Detroit Tigers. And, and how many uh, regular season wins did they have in 72, if, if you don't mind me 93. asking? 93. They were 93 okay. and 62. Right. Ninety-three and sixty-two. Because there was a stri- there was a, a mini strike at the top of that season. That's yes. why it wasn't a full fully played right. out season. Yeah, like a couple of weeks, ten days at the top of the season. I believe there was a strike. Uh, and oh, well, there'll be more about labor labor stuff coming up in a bit. But uh, Oakland wins the first two games. Um, game one, three to two, and in eleven innings. Um, I want to focus on game two for a second. And again, we're not going to deep dive into these games too much, but we'll talk about maybe some of the things that happened. And this is one that I've seen the video for thousands of times. And of course, I remember, um, again, five nothing shutout by Oakland. But the game is really known for Burt Campanaris throwing his bat at Laren Legro, the pitcher for the uh, the Tigers. And the reason is, is Billy Martin was was known for having his pitchers brush back and i'm doing the the uh, air quotes here because brush back means hit uh batters and legro hit burt campanaris in the ankle and uh campanaris took exception and i've watched this now a couple of times um as well as 50 year old world series games my wife thinks i'm crazy 48 year old world series games um you can see campanaris take a moment after he's been hit think about rushing <laughs> the pitcher and Burke Campanaris was kind of a slight guy. wasn't a big guy. Legro was a much bigger guy. And he just hauls off and throws the bat at him over his head. And it becomes maybe the most memorable moment in the 1972 series. Do you remember that? Do you remember Campanaris throwing it in at that time? Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because of course, you know, I'm, I'm all in with the A's at this point because the giants don't make the playoffs. The giants didn't have any, any kind of a great season at all. As a matter of fact, the reds who they're playing, uh, who they eventually play in the World Series, you know, had this phenomenal season. And so I remember watching that, and I also remember seeing Campanaris later on in the series. They didn't suspend him. They didn't do anything, I don't think, right? Uh, he was suspended for the rest of the ALCS. Oh, he was. Okay. But, so that's the last image then I have of, of him. But that's a very ma- major image of that Detroit-Oakland series. 
Yeah, I think he was suspended, might have missed a game or so, and then was, and again, there was so much information, and I tried to take notes on all of it I could, and, and, and then I think Bowie Kuhn actually overturned that, and uh, there was talk about suspending him for the World Series, but there was a thing in baseball at that point in time where you could get away with some things in the playoffs, and they wouldn't suspend you for the uh, playoffs or the series because they didn't want to dilute the product, so you'd be suspended for the you know the first 10 games of the next season, um, and I think so Campaneris had to serve some of that into the yeah, next season. Yeah, that was... Legro was actually uh, suspended as well. Uh, Billy Martin comes out unscathed, though. Doesn't end well. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> so they take the first two games. Uh, Detroit wins games three and four, um, three to nothing and four to three, a 10 inning game in game four. Best of five series at that point in the American League Championship Series. So the A's come to game seven, which. Game, um, game five. Excuse me, game five. <laughs> See, I'm so predisposed to say comes to game five, which was one to one after nine. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I jumped to game. I was jumping to game. I was on game four here. That was the game. My apologies. See, there's so much information to go through. Uh, game four, which was four, three and ten innings, was one to one after nine. Oakland scored two in the top of the ten in the bottom of the ten. Detroit scored three. Just bring that up because. Oakland played in all these postseason series, Mark. They were so close. Yes. And there were a couple of series where I mentioned you know, teams scored the same amount of runs and had literally the same batting average. But anyway, that was game four. Oakland wins the fifth game two to one. Uh, the important part of that game is they scored uh, the tying run on a double to make it one to one in the second. And uh, Reggie Jackson double foot sliding oddly into this. It's an odd slide that Jackson had. Then he was dealing with some injuries anyway, but it injured him and took him out of the series. Yeah. Uh, the world series. It, it helped win that game, but took him out of the world series. And he was at that point, he wasn't the Reggie Jackson of Yankee years, but really 72. He was a terrific player. The 72 was Reggie Jackson becoming capital R capital J Reggie Jackson. Exactly. And he had that kind of regular season, John, and that kind of effect on the ALCS. And then the A's go into the World Series without that guy. It was yeah. like, ooh, man, this yeah. is this is a huge blow to the A's. But you're right. It was as close as close can be that series with the Tigers. And I assumed the whole time because I grew up in as a San Francisco fan that, you, you know, you make it you make it to a certain place and then you lose right before right before the big show. All right. So then they move on to take on the Cincinnati Reds, who uh, had been in the World Series in, in 1970, had dropped the 1970 World Series to the uh, Baltimore Orioles. Um, here's a couple of interesting points before we get into the finer points of the series. Um, the winning team's players for winning the World Series got a hefty $20,000, $20,705. I wonder what the Discussions were about the 705 on top of that. There's something around $14,000 for the losing player to show you what different time it was. Big money back then. Yep. And the television broadcasts were pretty interesting because they broadcast with uh, Kurt Gowdy from NBC. I believe had the game. Um, and uh, Tony Kubek was a color commentator. He moved into the booth after having been a guy in the stands. He became the second player ever to be a color commentator for national baseball broadcasts. Following from 1961, his soon-to-be-broadcast partner Joe Garagiola, and I know you and I both have an amazing amount of fondness for Garagiola and Quebec. That's how I grew up listening to baseball. Oh yeah, oh yeah, 
No doubt about it. I only later learned about Kubek's um, incident in the 1960 World Series where the, the baseball, you know, took a horrible hop and hit him right in the Adam's apple. And, I mean, he went down. And uh, I think that was game seven as well. And, you know, again, here we go. Yes, Game exactly. seven of the 1960 World Series, which is one of the most classic games ever. But let's move on. Yes, absolutely. As I'm trying to get through this, I hope this isn't horribly boring, and I hope you're learning something. Uh, the final thing that I wanted to say about the broadcast is, you know who the Reds broadcaster was at that time? Al Michaels. Yes, he was. Look at you. I only know that because he then went to the Giants three or four years later, and I remember he was the Reds guy. And I remember, you know, the Reds were a big story in 72 because the Giants had just won the year before, and now the Reds come out of the gate in the Western Division, which is where they were then, you know, 60 and 20, something like that in the first half, just, you know, just just a dominating force. And I remember Al Michaels being a part of that. How about his career? How about his career? I'd forgotten. He went on. I mean, he, he I, I can't even the, the amount of teams that he's been the broadcaster for. When you think of him just being this national broadcaster, and you forget that these guys for a long time. Dick Enberg, who I knew from mainly from at the NFL on NBC, was the Angels broadcaster yep. for, for an extended period of time. We're also going to talk about one uh, guy who broadcast for both your team and my team as my favorite baseball broadcaster, not named Vin Scully, uh, who as a 22 year old will figure into this story coming up in just a couple of years. But let's stay with the 72 World Series. Uh, the A's beat the Cincinnati in that series in seven games. We'll talk about the seven games in a minute. Um, but I wanted to uh I wanted to uh, bring up uh, the MVP of that series because I I, I wanted to make sure we didn't miss this because the MVP of that series is Gene Tennis, who was my favorite baseball player when I was a kid um, or one of my favorite baseball players because I always liked catchers. And Gene Tennis was actually not a particularly good defensive catcher or a particularly good um, offensive player at the time for the regular season. Dave Duncan, by the way, was handling uh, was handling pitchers uh, for them at that time. Went on to be maybe the top two or three pitching coaches of all time. Yeah. Time with the Cardinals, he was with the Dodgers. Dave Duncan, um, but anyway, tennis in the regular season hit a lusty two oh five with five home runs, um, and believe it or not, slumped in the ALCS. He hit 059. He was one for 17 in the ALCS. But foreshadowing what's to come, his one hit drove in the go-ahead run in game five of that ALCS. So he dread the winning RBI in that series. You wanted to say something. No, no, no. It, it's it's remarkable how the A's did it. You know, you talked about close ALCSs, very close World Series, not just in number of games won and lost, but in the games themselves. Everything. Well, can I, can I, you, you led me to it, and I'll give it to you right now. Both teams in this series, the series that we're talking about now, and we're not going to go too deep inside of these games or a couple of things we want to talk about. Both teams had 46 hits in seven games. A little bit pitcher's duel after pitcher's duel. Uh, both teams had a 209 batting average in the game. Uh, all four of Cincinnati's losses were by one run. And six of the seven games were run-run games. That, that's remarkable. 
it is remarkable. And how do you end up on the winning side of that? What gives you that edge? And it, and in this case, it was this rarely used catcher who had 205 in the regular season and one for 17 in the playoffs because he came up with clutch hit after clutch hit after clutch hit. Well, and I think, you know, we've talked about this before, Mark, because just for the nature of baseball, you seem to be able seem to be able throughout the years to look at guys coming out of nowhere to be the heroes. And if not, uh, you know, nowhere, then something close to it. Uh, You think about a guy uh, in the 75 World Series and they didn't end up winning. But Bernie Carbo gets the Boston Red Sox in to extra innings uh, so that Carlton Fisk can win the thing. Um, it's, uh, for, for whatever reason, baseball just seems to lend itself. I think it's because you have to use so many people, and there are so many variables uh, with baseball. But it, uh, yeah. It's the October surprise. Who's going to be the unlikely hero? Yeah, yeah. It's, no one would have picked Gene Tennis coming into this World Series. No one. No, absolutely not. Um, so the A's take games uh, uh, one and two in Cincinnati. Um, I wanted to bring up game two because in that game, um, Joe Rudy really kind of saved that game, made it made a catch that, uh, frankly, better than the Willie Mays catch that gets all the. Mays just tracked it down. I go with a man no more of an expert than Bob Feller, who says that the Willie Mays catch in the in the World Series was that 54, 50? It was fifty four, and Feller was on the the the, the opposing team, so yeah. Yeah, there's a little bias in but that. There was, was a good point. There was a good point about all of that with with Willie Mays, and here we go down an alley that has nothing to do with the seventies, uh, and, and we're going to go even further down with Joe Rudy in just a second. But uh, everybody said they knew Mays. You knew when Mays was tracking a ball because he'd, he'd punch his glove. Yep. If he wasn't sure, he wouldn't punch his glove. And one of the reasons that Feller and a lot of the guys said, we saw Mays punch his glove, and we knew he had the ball. He just had to cover a lot of ground, and he was the guy who could do that. By the way, he's going to figure into our story coming up in a couple of worlds. It, it was his throw afterwards, too, that made he the thing. Spin around and make the throw, right. Absolutely great. Well, Joe Rudy makes a catch where basically he launches himself yeah. uh, and, and, and robs Rob Cincinnati of a run. I bring this up because Joe Rudy came into baseball in the late 60s as a first baseman and was trying to make the Kansas City A's. uh, This was 66 or 67, was trying to make the Kansas City A's as an outfielder because there was no room for first baseman. And it just so happened that a guy who was a unofficial slash official assistant to the Kansas City A's and had been a pretty good outfielder in his own right, um, took Joe Rudy under his wing, saw something in him, and taught him the finer points of playing in the outfield. One guess as to who that guy was. Well. Willie Mays. Actually, no. Willie Mays was still playing. This is like See, Can you, you set that listening? up? Can you? Yeah, I did. Just okay. briefly. Can you right. set that up one more time for yes, me, and then I'll make a better guess. I have no problem. I have no problem. Uh, Joe Rudy was a first baseman. Yes, there were no first base positions available. Was trying to make the A's by making the transition to to an outfielder, and uh, was struggling. And there was a official slash unofficial uh, coach 
assistant with the Kansas City A's at that time, who had been a Hall of Fame caliber outfielder who took Joe Rudy under his wings, taught him how to play in the outfield. And Rudy, as you know, went on to be one of the best defensive uh, defensive outfielders in baseball. One day. And, and was this uh, was this uh, person um, a Hall of Fame outfielder also because of his defense or just because of his offense? Uh, he was a Hall of Fame outfielder because he was a five-tool player, a Hall of Fame uh, outfielder because of both his defense and offense and was the second most recognizable name of a former player of the most recognizable Joe DiMaggio. Yes, absolutely correct. Nicely done. Yeah, Joe DiMaggio was unofficially slash officially. No one it seemed seemingly we're not sure, but he was involved with the Kansas City Athletics and he took the time, saw something in Joe Rudy and uh, he, DiMaggio, you know, we know about the offense, but he was a wonderful, wonderful outfielder. And so so that paid off dividends for Joe Rudy to save uh, game two of the World Series, uh, which the A's went on to win in seven games. Do you have any more remembrances of that series? I just broke down how close it was. Just the game where uh, Johnny Bench is at the plate and Raleigh Fingers, their closer, their splendid closer, who I believe won a Cy Young, if I'm not mistaken, when he got to Milwaukee and is a Hall of Famer. Yes, he did. uh, Was supposedly... Uh, intentionally walking Johnny Bench. <laughs> I know this story. And I think it was at a 3-2 count. And I don't think the, enti- the entire at-bat wasn't meant for an intentional walk. But when they got to a certain point, maybe 2-2, two and two, and I don't know the exact details, you know, then Tennis sticks his arm out, and they, and they you know, ostensibly begin the process of the intentional walk game, you know, pitch number five, ball three is, is outside, well outside in a normal intentionally walk uh, location. And then literally Raleigh fingers drills one down the middle and a surprise Johnny bench just looks at it. And it's a called strike three. And that was a key moment in one of those games, six of which were decided by one run. I think that was a one run game as well. So that was, that's a moment that sticks out in the 72 world series for me in, uh, uh, in reading the story about that it's Dick Williams goes out to the mound and he makes it abundantly clear as he's talking, he's pointing And he's basically gesticulating in such a way that it's like, okay, they're going to walk bench. But the whole time that he's doing that, he's he's doing that. But then he's just saying to to tennis uh, uh, and uh, Joe uh, and uh, uh, fingers and Sal Bando um, as he's pointing to like first base and everything. He's going, all right, we're not going to walk him set up to walk him. And then I want you to throw a strike. So Dick Williams actually put that whole thing together. And, uh, yeah, it, it's probably, outside of Rudy's catch, maybe the most famous moment of the 1972 World Series. And the A's have their very first World Series championship since 1930. Any any follow-up thoughts on the 72 A's, Mark? I mean, it, again, it was one of those things where they just were ju- they were just a little bit better than the two teams they ended up facing in the postseason just a little bit. You know, they they had to win in five games in a best-of-five series. They had to win in seven games in a best-of-seven series. They were 1-1 games going into extra innings. There were were six games uh, decided by one run. And what was, you know, what was that extra thing? I think in the World Series it was probably Gene Tennis. But it was also they just were that much more clutch 
Then the then the other team they got that they got one more key hit. They got one more key strike, and it was the way the the, the coolness of the way they approached it. It's almost as if they just knew. Yeah. They just knew. They didn't let the moment uh, get the better of them. And yeah. this Cincinnati Reds team already was established with these major power hitters. And, you know, you had Johnny Bench who won an MVP in 70 and in 72. Like I said, they get out to a 60 and 20 start in the first half. The, the big red machine was already established. It was going to get a lot better than that, as we'll talk about next week. But uh, the fact that they were able to hold their own and win that World Series was highly remarkable without Reggie Jackson, oh, by the way. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone anticipated it was going to happen the next couple of years. No, again, as mentioned, both teams have 46 hits. Both of them hit 209. Cincinnati actually outscores uh, the A's in that series, 21 to 16. Uh, all four losses for the Reds by one run. And I think the uh, the A's um, actually held the Reds almost two runs below what their normal output of runs per game were. And I think for the Reds, there's a lot of discussion that, uh, you know, the uh, it, they used to say about both Catfish Hunter and um, uh, Sandy Koufax that uh, – They'll strike out, but they won't embarrass you. And it never seems like they're better than you. It never seems like they're getting the best of you. And then the game's over and you haven't done anything. And I think that the A's were just used to that sort of thing more than the Reds. The big red machine. And they weren't quite the big red machine yet. They Not were, quite. They were very close. Um, but they they were used to being some of a juggernaut team. And to your point, they just were not used to those games where you you made that one additional play or that one error hurt you. The, leaving that pitcher in one inning too much um, when something bad would happen, it just seemed other teams would couldn't bounce back from it. And the A's just they, they were able to shrug it off oddly. Now, they're they all were. fighting, fighting with each other in the in the locker room. Um, there were plenty of fights in the locker room. They hated each other. There's a great anecdote of the team getting ready to get on the bus, and there's a kid out asking for autographs. And uh, you know, guys are walking by. And finally, Reggie Jackson stops to sign an autograph, and, and um, the kid's mother or something, and this may be apocryphal, but it's a great story anyway. Um, the kid's mother said, uh, well, you're nicer than all your friends. And Reggie looked at her and go, there aren't any friends on this bus. <laughs> So, I mean, that was they were a precursor to those 77, uh, 78 uh, Yankees that said they take. And who is the common denominator? Catfish Hunter. Or Reggie, too. Or Reggie. Yeah, that's true. But Reggie stopped to sign the autograph. Um, But anyway, that is. Yeah, they they were they were remarkable that way. And that that really goes through all of their uh, all of their series, American League series and World Series. Final year, they they did a little better in 74. They were able to get out of these without a seven-game series in the World Series. But they were remarkable at that point. I wanted to bring up just a couple of things before we move on. You brought up Raleigh Fingers, and I just wanted to bring up his numbers, the Hall of Famer, to your point. Uh, he was a seven-time All-Star, and he was the American League MVP in 1981. That was his, I believe, first year with Milwaukee coming over from San Diego. 28 saves and a 1.04 ERA. Also got the Cy Young that year, uh, 17 years, 2.90 uh, earned run average, 341 saves. And uh, if not for Charlie Finley, he wouldn't be remembered because everybody remembers him because of his mustache, which he grew for three hundred dollars. 
that amazing, amazing stuff. And he also had a chance to get to Milwaukee because of what Charlie Finley did later on in the decade, which I'm sure you're going to get to. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, to me, to me, a lot of the reason why this guy's a Hall of Famer, yeah, that one season in 81 where he's 1.09 is remarkable, and his career stats are great as well. But it's his performance in the postseason, Johnny. I mean, you know, yeah. we've all talked about this. What in the end really makes the difference in postseason baseball? Who has the better bullpen? Yeah. In the end, in the end, that's about it, If especially if you're relatively evenly matched as, as two teams. Right, and fingers, people might not, at that time, reliever didn't come in every time for the last three outs of the game or the last four or the last two. And there were, there were series during these American League Championship Series and World Series where he pitched four and five innings yeah. as a yeah, closer. Yeah. I yeah, mean, just, it's just so clutch. It's all right. All right, so we move on to 1973. Uh in the offseason, Charlie Finley makes some moves. Again, should mention that Finley was the general manager of the team and would just willy-nilly move people around for no apparent reason. I mentioned, and he got the short shrift, Mike Epstein had come over to the team in 72. Uh, big hitting, power hitting guy. Never got along with uh, Charlie Finley. And so he was traded to Texas. And traded to Texas at that point in time was like you know, sending somebody to Cleveland to play football. They were the worst team in baseball. They'd only moved to Texas in 72 uh, after leaving Washington. And everybody got to Arlington and realized that it was 166 degrees with 94% relative humidity every single day. And no one wanted to go there. So Charlie sent Mike Epstein off to Texas. Uh, but he did bring in uh, for that 73 season. And I mentioned him earlier, not regarding 72, but Dave Duncan, uh, to catch, excuse me, sent Dave Duncan uh, to uh, to Cleveland uh, and brought in Ray Fossey as a catcher, whose career was not ended after the 1970 All-Star Game, despite what, what people may have said long before the Buster Posey, don't look at me wrong because I'm, I'm afraid you'll hurt me rule came into play. But uh, Epstein to, te- to Texas was kind of the big... Uh, the big move in that off season. Uh, they win 94 games, despite the fact that they came out of the gate. Like a lot of world series teams did Mark first, first five, six weeks of the season. I think they were in fifth place at, at, at one point in time. Um, a lot of people argued, talked about the fact that you know the team wasn't unhappy with getting rid of Epstein and all of that. But I just think that's a that's a hangover from World Series. I remember ALCS World Series. They they played a lot of extra baseballs. Baseball. It, after was, those it was also Vita Blue. Vita Blue. I think only won six games in '72 after having that yeah. you know Cy Young and MVP year pre previously. Yeah, and he spent he started spending time in a bullpen. He, he never really matched that uh, up uh, again. Uh, though actually in, uh, in 70, in 73, it was a 20 game winner, but it was, I think it was 74 that he dropped out. Oh, 70, yeah, yeah my, 70, cause they had three 20 game winners, Holtzman, Hunter and blue. And, and my bad, I think he only won six games in 72 after the 71 season. So that, maybe, that was, maybe that was it. And I apologize for, for not, again, I can only take so many notes over the last I get week. It. I get it. You've done a remarkable job. This is, Ugh. this is a lot of effort, a lot of hours. Is and it a in lot any of way entertaining? Done. I'm personally thrilled that we're all doing right. this but i might be the only one and let's check out of the bubble jeff entertaining all right i get the thumbs up from jeff it's somewhat entertaining okay so we move on to the american league championship series if you want to do the deep dive into the the regular season again baseballreference.com you can look at everything you can look at a box score of every single game i to hours and hours of fun for you if you want to do it but in the uh in the alcs they run into 
the Baltimore Orioles. Now, this is an Oriole team. Boy, talk about pitching and pitching matchups. You, you, now you've got this Oriole team with Jim Palmer, still Mike Cuellar, uh, Dave McNally. They're just loaded, and you have uh, the A's with this great pitching. So uh, what happens? People score a lot more runs than they did in the 72 <laughs> ALCS. Uh, Baltimore takes the first game uh, six to nothing in the series. Oakland takes the second game six to three. That is interesting because that snapped a 10 game winning streak for Baltimore in the American League Championship Series. Right, because they would roll through those things in 69 and 70 and in 71. That was those were not those were three straight three and zero oh, three and out. Yep, for, for Baltimore, and then and then game one, they were they were probably assuming here we go again. It's all about just getting to the World Series. It's not about the A's. Well, and uh, you know that's why the Baltimore Orioles of Earl Weaver were essentially the John Madden Raiders of uh, of baseball. And, and to a large degree, I agree. Yep. All or right, the Tony so, Larusa A's. That's true. Game three, Oakland wins two to one in eleven. That is uh, notable because the aforementioned Bert Campanaris of the bat throwing incident wins that game with a leadoff home run in the eleventh. Baltimore takes game four five to four, and game five in Oakland, a deciding game of the American League Championship Series by the defending World Series champions, draws a lusty twenty four thousand people for that game. Unbelievable. I mean, that really is unbelievable. And to your point, if anyone thinks baseball is unhealthy right now, it's ridiculous. Yep. I mean, you, there, there were you look in the 70s and yes, my nephew, Brian Winnegar, who we've talked about a few times on this show, was a former producer, has often said there's just more people now, Uncle Mark. There's more people. <laughs> That's why. No, but there were there were games in the 70s that drew 500 people, John. Yeah, there there were the Marlins would be the Marlins with their anemic one point six million people that they draw and everyone looking at them as, as as this moribund franchise. They would have been among the top three or four teams yeah. drawing yeah, it's in top the 1970s. Five, it's at the worst. Yeah. And, and, and in the in the book that I mentioned, and once again, I need to give it some uh, credit because it's really a lot of fun and it'll tell you so much more dynastic, bombastic and fantastic. It's the history of the Charlie Finley A's Jason Turbo is the writer. He talks about uh, that they were lucky. They, they felt like they were doing well when they get five figures in a game, meaning if they got over 10,000 people to regular that, season game. That's nuts. That's nuts. Game five to see who's going to to see if the defending world champions are going to go back to defend their title. 24,000 people. 24,000 people in that game. Uh, Catfish Hunter hits uh, gives a five hit shutout in that game. They win it three to nothing. And again, here you t- here we talk about even though the game six six to nothing six three two to one five to four three to nothing they weren't quite as close as before the A's hit two hundred for that series uh, the O's hit two eleven thirty two hits for Oakland thirty six for Baltimore uh, and both both teams uh, scored fifteen runs so it's just it, it, I, again that was something that was new to me. I knew a little bit of the World Series, but I didn't know the championship series and how tight those were. And, and to your point, um, just uh, one player who stepped up who you didn't expect, Gene Tennis. Uh, one mistake made by somebody at some point that, that changed those games. So now in 1973, they meet 
the surprising New York Mets. Mark, did you know that the New York Mets of 1973 have the lowest winning percentage of any pennant winner in Major League Baseball history? They had the ninth best record in Major League Baseball that year. I think they were three games over 500. I think they were 82 and 79. 82 and 79. Look at you. I, I just, well, I remember that very well because Willie Mays was on that team. And the, the, the Mets that year were completely forgotten about behind Pittsburgh and St. Louis, I believe, and maybe even Chicago in that Eastern Division. And they made a run similar to 69. And everyone's thinking this is the next Miracle Mets four years later. And they somehow beat the aforementioned Cincinnati Reds, I think yep. three games to two in, in the uh, – in the championship series, and the Reds to that point, John, were very much like the John Madden Raiders as well. Yeah. Or, 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 or it, they just could not win anything. They could, they, they could get there, but they couldn't win. And they somehow find themselves in the World Series. So, yeah, that was John Matlock. That was uh, yes. I, Tom Seaver, obviously, was still on that team. Right. Um, you know, and, and you had a, you had a, a very, very, uh, you know, past his prime, you know, eight years past his prime, Willie Mays. But, oh, yeah, I remember that team very well. And looking back, 82 and 79, and they're in the World Series. Yeah, it's just crazy. And again, the ninth best record in baseball. Um, just to give, show you what the National League East was just a dumpster fire in 1973. But Yogi Berra, give him credit. They were, what, six and a half games out at the end of August or something just insane. And they just went on a tear during that period of time. And, uh, yeah, and, it's just and not just six and a half out, but like in fourth place, they had right. to climb over teams right. as well. Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of those remarks that you could do a deep dive into the 1973 Mets and have some fun with it. But these are the, these are the first world series games where they play weekday games at night, by the way, it was 1973. First time that that happened. Nope. Um, there's also Reggie Jackson's MVP season. Now he's really become M, uh, the MV, uh, the superstar that he would be. 293, 32 home runs, 117 RBIs, swipe 22 bases as well. That, that's really Reggie. I, I would say even more in his prime as a multi-tool player than he was when he got to New York. Sure, I agree. Because really, as a, as a base runner at that point, he had you know he, he bulked up a little bit. He was more of a home run hitter. His average dropped off a bit at that point. But... Um, yeah, he and, was, and, uh, and he was right coming into his prime. He was probably right around thirty at that point in time. So he yeah. was, you know, in baseball players' prime. He was he was hitting his stride. Absolutely. All right. So and, we move on to the World Series. Uh, now this is the first year of the designated hitter in the regular season, thus ruining the American League for me for the rest of my life, and soon to ruin all of baseball apparently. Yeah. Um, but there's no DH in the series. I only bring that up because the A's win the first game of the season. Uh, of the series, two to one over the Mets, and uh, one of the reasons was because Ken Holtzman, who Ken had Holtzman. batted all season, doubles and scores in the third inning, and you get a two-one victory for the A's. Yep. Holtzman, a good batter, he comes up later in the series, hits a couple doubles in in, in a game, uh, just just remarkable, just remarkable. Yep. And by the way, to show you what a different time it was, do you know what Ken Holtzman's nickname was? I don't. I, I, oh, wait a minute. Can you give me a hint? All right. I want to make sure I have this right because it's it's, uh, it's I I don't know. I don't think I know, but I think I'll probably go. Oh, that's right. When you say it. Uh, and, and as you're looking that up, I no, want to let you know that I, okay. I went to game one or game two. One of those two. I 
I thought it was game one. Well, game um, the game two, did, the did, Mets did won. Game two, Felipe, uh, did Felix Milan make an error in game two? A big anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I think I went to game two in, in Oakland. I saw that World Series game live. Okay. Uh, well, game two was a ten to seven Mets win in ten innings. Yeah, that was maybe, the Mike Andrews game. Maybe it was game one then. It was game. It was game one. Do, did you find Ken Holtzman's nickname? Uh, no, actually, I made a mistake. It was Mike Epstein's nickname. And oh, okay. I bring that up only too because they were both Jewish players, and it, it comes. It, it, this figures in uh, a little bit later with uh, Alvin Dark and his sort of questionable character. Um, but uh, uh, Mike Epstein's nickname, and checking in on this, was Super Jew. I mean, that's what really what they called him. Which, interestingly wow. enough, is what Jerry Lewis had on his golf bag. Apparently, was that he had that on his golf bag. But just, yeah, a little different time. I don't think you can get away with calling your, your Jewish players super Jew. Though Epstein, great power hitter. There's no doubt about that. Now yeah. we move on to game two. The the ten to seven Mets win in ten innings, and I mentioned the Mike Andrews errors. Mike Andrews had two errors in that game. By the way, it's the longest game in World Series history to that point. Four hours and 13 minutes. Um, Mike Andrews made two errors in that game and essentially cost the A's the game. Charlie Finley was so angry with Mike Andrews that he put him on the DL following the game. Andrews wasn't injured. He made Andrews sign a paper saying he was injured. God. And uh, he, uh, Dick Williams had to go along with it. Everybody had to go along with it. Players didn't really go along with it. Then there was a bit of a player revolt. There was always a fight or a player revolt in off days in the World Series with, with the A's. But all the players took to taping the number 17, which was Andrew's number, on their jerseys. They started just openly criticizing Finley um, in, the, uh, in the press. Uh, finally... Andrews was brought back to the team two games later, a uh, team two games later. But that was really kind of the moment where they had put up with Charlie Finley. And and, and, and I haven't talked a lot about it, but he was difficult to deal with. He was very cheap and he wasn't, you know, he would say nasty things about them when he's, they're, he's a bully. He says yeah. nasty things. He holds grudges. Right. You know, he, uh, you know, behaves like it seems like a lot of. And you have to say he was also massively successful. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that comes with the territory to some degree because it doesn't seem like it seems like that characteristic is certainly in in a lot of those kinds of people. Right. And he would always. And, and the funny thing is, Finley didn't even care. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth and he got caught because it was all sort of a game to him. But he would tell Gene Tennis, well, the only reason you've done this well is because Sal Bando was doing this. And they would tell about Bando, well, if it wasn't for tennis, you wouldn't be doing anything. And I think he said to Reggie Jackson that uh, superstar, you're not a superstar. Babe Ruth was a superstar. Jackson was like, that's the bar. <laughs> you know, the- <laughs> You know that. So basically, There's what one you're saying, superstar is, then? There's one superstar in the superstar. history of Major League Baseball. In the, in the history of the game, anyway. So the A's go on to win uh, Game Three, uh, three to two. Uh, the Mets then take two in a row, six to one, and two to nothing. Um, game Six goes to the so the A's are on the verge of elimination at this point, and they, they, they win come, the last. They, they come home to Oakland down three two. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so they they win the last two games, three to one and five to two. It sh- it should be pointed out that uh, Babe Ruth, the aforementioned Babe Ruth, Gene Tennis actually tied a Babe Ruth World Series statistic during that season. Tennis continuing his importance. He walked eleven times in that series. Yeah, yeah, they do. They they didn't want to take the chance he was going to hurt him via the home run. So they they walked Gene Tennis. So both both series he plays vital parts in. But yeah, so they were down three two. So if you're arguing and you're Gene Tennis and you're trying to get a new contract and Charlie Finley has said to Reggie Jackson, you're not a superstar. Babe Ruth is a superstar. Don't you walk in as Gene Tennis? And I mean, Charlie, Babe and I, 11 walks in the series. I want Babe Ruth type money. Yeah, which, I think you do that. Yeah, which when we're talking about salaries at this point in time, you're talking anywhere from seventy dollars to $100,000, which just seems... Pre-free agent. This is this is just pre-free agent era, and it's obviously already starting. The Kurt Flood thing happened in in sixty, you know, in in sixty nine, seventy, and the strike in seventy two at the beginning of the season for about a week, ten days, and uh, we're we're headed that way, John. And I know it affects the A's in a major way. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. We come to the nineteen seventy four season, and again, I, at, at an hour and five minutes, I'm going to try to pick up the pace on this just a little bit because I'm sure it's just becoming devastatingly boring for people who were hoping to find out uh, what was going on with the U.S. Open tennis uh, and who dropped out. <laughs> right, Big and, and, changes. <sighs> Big changes in the 74 series. Should mention that the Mike Andrews situation in Game 2, uh, Dick Williams was so upset by it, and Dick Williams had put up with a lot from Charlie Finley, that Williams, after, I believe, Game 4, told the team that that was going to be his last season in Oakland. He thought by doing that, surprisingly, that the team would support him on that, and they really didn't. They felt like he was deserting them and leaving them to Charlie's uh, Charlie Finley's uh, wily ways, for lack of a better term. And so the team sort of turned on Williams a little bit. They, they came around on that, but and I think some, some of it was that they were hurt. But uh, here, once again, the only guy who lasted three seasons as a manager from, for Charlie Finley, now on his own volition, is going to walk away after the third season. And he does. And we mentioned earlier, uh, wanted to go on to be the manager of the New York Yankees, didn't get that job, went on to manage um, the then-California Angels. So 1974 is coming along, and there are a couple of things at play now for the A's. First of all, they need a manager, and arbitration is now uh, an issue. And uh, I uh, I would uh, suggest that you do a little research into the arbitration. Charlie Finley, who kind of outsmarted himself, um, about 75 or 80 percent of the players that arb- won their arbitration versus Charlie Finley and the arbitration wins for the rest of Major League Baseball were somewhere around 20 to 30 percent. One of the things that arbitration did was it made all of this everyone's salaries public domain. And so the A's, who not unlike, and here, just to take a swipe at them because I hate them, not unlike the early 1970s Dallas Cowboys, they were underpaying their players horribly. And, you know, unless players shared it among themselves, that information wasn't out there. And by 74, the information is now out there. So guys are going to get a lot more money. I bring up the arbitration one because I have to tell this very, very funny story. And I don't know if you know this at all, but going into arbitration, there was a story in the San Francisco Chronicle quoting Ken Holtzman as saying that uh, Finley can go bleep himself 
It said bleep in the quote, so Holtzman may have actually said bleep, that he called him a cheap son of a bitch, which there's absolute truth to. said Marvin Miller is a phony and advocated to get traded to the Rangers, as I mentioned, the Siberia of Major League Baseball at that point in time. This obviously everybody's looked at, oh, my God, Holtzman in his arbitration, they're going to go after him. Thing is, he didn't say any of those things that were reported by veteran Hall of Fame sports writer Bob Stevens in the San Francisco Chronicle. What happened was that uh, Stevens had filed the, the, most of his report, and he was getting help by a reporter named Jack Fisk, who wanted to contract, contact Holtzman and get a couple of quotes on some other things that had been said. And mistakenly, Jack Fisk thought he had <laughs> Holtzman's phone number. He didn't. He had the home number. He had the home phone number of Wells Twombly, who was a uh, was a writer for the San Francisco Examiner, another paper in San Francisco. Twombly realized that <laughs> that Fisk thought he was talking to Holtzman, and uh, decided, well, what the hell? I'll play along. And he's the one who said all of these things. Wow. Now later, Twombly said, "Oh, I thought it was a joke." So I just was having fun. I didn't realize it would be a thing. I wasn't trying to hurt a competitor. Um, that is somewhat <laughs> mitigated by the fact that Twombly didn't tell his own paper that he'd done it, and the examiner published it as it was the truth as well. And uh, because of this, Holtzman had to have a press conference and everything. But I just thought, my my goodness. Boy, talk wow. about your fake news. Good Seriously. Lord. Just That's creating that's a great story. That is that is that is that that sound you know that's wild west in reporting. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah, hey, is this is this Ken Holtzman? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure is. Ken, I wonder. Uh, Charlie Finley said, you know, you had a little down here. Well, he can go fuck himself then. I want to go to the Rangers. I mean, it's just beautiful, and it's such old school sort of journalistic thing. You know, it's that whole you know stealing the reporter's uh, notes so he can't write the story sort of thing that you, you'd hear. But, yeah, talk about the Wild West. That was one of my favorite, favorite stories uh, that I read in this entire thing. And I had no idea about it. And poor Ken Holtzman was like, yeah. what the hell? Yeah, and then he had to call a press conference. And then Holtzman had to say nice things about uh, about Finley, which he didn't mean. Sure. But, but he's got – and uh, Twombly, you got to give him credit. Not only does he go after Finley, he goes after Marvin Miller. Seriously. getting these guys more money than they've ever had. It, it's so bizarre. It's like <laughs> he must have just thought, you know, he must have had a few pops and just thought, let me, let, let me run with this thing. Who gives a rat's poop? Oh, my God. Just one of my favorite stories. All right. So moving on, uh, that's uh, one of the big offseason stories. Uh, three days before spring training – the A's don't have a manager yet. Three days before spring training. Wow. They also don't have a broadcast outlet, so they take care of that all in the same day. And I brought him up before, didn't say him by name, but I will now because he's one of our favorites. The broadcaster who was hired to do play-by-play -play for the Oakland A's in 1974 was 22-year-old John Miller. Wow. I did not know that. I did yep. not know that. That's really fun. And there is the speculation that no one uh, older than Miller would take the job because they knew too much about Finley and none of them wanted any anything to do with it. And there are some stories of things that Finley wanted broadcasters to stay, say. And again, we don't have time to go through this, but uh, there were great stories about when Dick Williams came back and he wanted and Finley put. 
good night, Dick, up on the uh, <laughs> up on the uh, electronic scoreboard. And he went down at one point to tell, uh, what is it, Monty Moore, who was uh, for the longtime broadcast, uh, one of the broadcasters, and he worked with uh, with Miller as well. Um, but he went down to tell these guys that he, uh, he I guess he was he, he'd out of several. You know, and and at this point, uh, Finley had a had a stroke, and he, I mean, he was just he was just not in a good way, and even in a good way, he wasn't in a good way. But uh, and he's he's like, yeah, so when the game's over, because they're up in the game, it's like the eighth inning. When the game's over, they're playing the Angels. Uh, we're gonna, it's going to say good night, Dick, up there on the screen, and they're like, oh, okay, Charlie, what do you want us to tell the scoreboard operator? No, they know. I want you to announce it. That oh it says, my gosh! So Man. I, it's and, and addictive. I oh my god! You you have no idea. You have no idea. But he could also let me just give Finley some credit too. He could also be very generous with people, and that's how he try to buy them back from time to time. And that's why the A's uh, first rings uh, world championship rings were absolutely amazing uh and uh more expensive than any right. ring up to that right. point uh eventually their last uh, world series championship ring was apparently not a stone it was just glass and just a piece of crap uh and i think holtzman said he was going to use it for a fishing weight but uh anyway that's a, a little bit about charlie finley but uh, so john miller comes in to broadcast uh starting or continuing with what just one of the great baseball announcers of all time, formerly of my Baltimore Orioles, your San Francisco Giants, um, and uh, nationally with Joe Morgan. Next to Garagiola and Kubek, my favorite guys to listen to. Uh, again, oh, yeah. Not, yeah. Named, not named Vin Scully. All right. Uh, so they have to announce a manager. So they bring in Alvin Dark. Oh, boy. I have, I, have a, I have a soft spot for Alvin Dark, but I don't know enough about him. You're going to lose that. Because I think he was the Giants manager in 62. Yes. When they, uh, when they went to the World Series. And I think I read some things about Alvin Dark at one point in time. And I'm he not, was I'm, of his place and time. Yeah. He would, not, he would not enjoy the social changes going on right now. Uh, he'd actually manage the A's. He'd managed the A's in 66 and part of 1967, and uh, he ended up getting fired because Finley wanted him to jump in on some lie about a player so that he didn't either have to play, pay, he could cut the player or pay him more, and Finley and uh, and Dark, to his credit, wouldn't do it and ended up getting fired. But anyway, they bring back um, Alvin Dark uh, as a, a as the manager. We'll get into him a bit later. The other big thing that they did this year, and I, I only bring this up because you and I talked about Ronaldo Nehemiah, and apparently it's something, something about the Bay Area wanting to sign guys who didn't have any experience in the sport they were playing, but man, they love speed. Yeah. Al Davis loved speed. Uh, the Niners loved um, Herb Washington. You, you knew I was going to bring about Herb Washington. Yeah. Herb Washington was a sprinter who uh, had never, he hadn't played baseball since high school, but he was a world-class sprinter, and Charlie Finley signed him into pinch run. And, and I believe he was the only man with multiple pinch running experiences during World Series play, and I don't think his career lasted very, very long. But uh, yeah. And I'm not sure he ever took an at-bat either. No, I don't believe he ever took an yeah. at-bat. Yeah. He only pinch ran. That's all. only reason he was there. So, yeah. you know, sure. not going to need... We won't need another relief pitcher. Well, let's just bring this guy into pinch run. 
Um, all right, so we move on to the 1974 season. Now, Alvin Dark, I mentioned it before, he had less than modern ideas about race. And he'd gotten himself in trouble before by saying, we talked about uh, the situation on Nightline with um, uh, Al, Campanis. Jim, Al, Al Campanis. But he said kind of the same things about uh, African-American players. And he did not use African-American well into the 1970s. He was calling his black players colored boys. Um, but saying that, you know, uh, none of them can think through a game. They never, they can never think. Um, and just to just to prove uh, that he was uh, kind of an equal opportunity offender when it came to race, uh, he said a lot of nasty things about uh, Hispanic players as well. Um, but he he once said to Reggie Jackson, Reggie was coming back from an injury, and another player, uh, and it might have been Ray Fossey, was coming back from an injury, and this was in '74. Um, and uh, no, I think it was Joe Rudy. And uh, Jackson DH'd as he was coming back. Dark had him DH in a couple of games before he put him on the field. And uh, I guess Rudy came back and said, you know what, I'd like to, I, I'm feeling a little bit better. And Dark said, if you're not going to play in the field, you know, you, you can't play. And he said, well, this, I, I can DH. And so Reggie Jackson came to him and said, why, why are you doing this? Joe can DH. It would help us. You allowed me to do it. And Alvin Dark said to Reggie Jackson, uh, we all know uh, colored boys heal up more quickly than white boys. So that's Alvin Dark. Alvin. Wow, there, there it is, Alvin Dark. <laughs> Ironic last name. Yes, exactly. Uh, all right, so we move on to the uh, ALCS uh, again with the Baltimore Orioles. Um, they lose game one in Baltimore. Uh, Catfish Hunter gets shelled in a, a, a 6-3 loss uh, in Baltimore. I bring it up simply because I believe this is when Catfish Hunter had the greatest quote of his career, and he was quite quotable. But uh, Hunter, who had a lot of success in postseason, um, Hall of Fame pitcher, um, yelled in game one of that ALCS. And when the writers came to him, he was still the old, you know, smiling catfish. And I think you know this quote. But they they were like, aren't you aren't you upset? <laughs> and Hunter said, well, sun doesn't shine on the same dog's ass every day. I don't even know what that means, but it's Catfish Hunter in a uh, uh, the great Catfish Hunter. Baltimore wins that game 6-3. How many runs do you think they score in the next three games, all wins by Oakland, to take the best of five? Three. One. They give up one more run. Oakland shuts them out five to nothing, one to nothing, and then wins two to one. Again, one to nothing, two to one in these deciding uh, important games. They, uh, man, they always played close games, and we're going to find out a lot more about that coming up in just a minute. So they move on to their third consecutive World Series, and they meet the 102-win Los Angeles Dodgers. Give Mark a moment to boo. I had just moved down to Los Angeles at that time. I had okay. just moved down to Palos Verdes and, and had uh, made one friend. I was, a, I was a freshman in high school, so I knew no one, and everyone knew each other from middle school because there were three middle schools that fed in, so there were all kinds of groups. But I had one guy, one guy I, I hung out with, and um, I bet him. I bet him a bunch of money from, for that time, maybe $20, and uh, I said the, the A's are going to win. And he's a big Dodger fan. As a matter of fact, my first concert, I went with him to Dodger Stadium to see Elton John. 
Oh, uh, wow. The, Is that the, the famous very, John Lennon, Elton John? No, it's not. But it, it, it's the no, it's the 75. Uh, now, I think that's John. I, whatever gets you through the night. Is uh, that was Madison Square Garden, I believe, is when they did was that. It? I thought I thought he did because I thought he showed up and played with them at Dodger Stadium. But uh, at Dodger Stadium, that was that famous Dodger Stadium uh, Elton John concert in '75, right. where he was just so loaded up at that point in time, and it was really at the peak of of his stuff before he kind of precipitously fell for a bit. But at any rate, uh, Tony, uh, I, I can't remember his last name, but Tony. Yeah, I bet him uh, on the bus, on the bus, on the way to school. Bet him a bunch of money on that because he was a big Dodger fan. Everyone was thrilled with the Dodgers. They won 102 games, blah, blah, blah. I think they beat the Pittsburgh Pirates in the in the, in the NLCS, blah, 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 Dodgers. And, I mean, it, that was Walter Aust- Alston's last year, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And, um, you know, they, they uh, the A's, spoiler alert, beat him pretty handily. Yeah, well, it, they, they beat him in five. Pretty handily is another thing. We'll get to that in just a second. In terms they, of games, yes, you're yeah. absolutely right, John Pell. Yes, they beat they they beat them in five, as mentioned before, the first All California World Series. A uh, couple things to realize is that Dodger infield that was together for like a decade, they were all they, they it was it was Garvey, say yep. um, uh, Russell, Russell, and uh, who am I missing? Davy Lopes. Davy Lopes, right? That this they were. Young and very, very good at that point, but they weren't going to win this World Series. Uh, game one of the series, a three to two. Remember, three to two, Mark. It was a three to two victory for the A's. Um, notable because Raleigh Fingers, as mentioned before, four and a third in relief to win that game. Uh, game two goes to LA by a score of three to three two. To two. <laughs> three to two, they win that game. Game three goes to the A's by a score of. Three to two. Three to two. Wow. Absolutely. Uh, game four was the uh, was the anomaly in this in this series. Uh, you've got the A's up two to one at this point. Game four, the A's win five to two, and Ken Holtzman hits a home run in that game. Yeah, he was so, a good hitting somebody, pitcher. Somebody trade Holtzman to the National League for God's sake. Um, and uh, moving on to game five, um, a name that will. 12 years hence become baseball lore. Uh, Bill Buckner, who after every game of the series, Bill Buckner really pissed off the Oakland uh, A's players, fans, everyone, because Buckner, after every game, they're not better than us. We're better than them. They should not. They shouldn't have won that game. As, as mentioned before, they were like, you know, Hunter and, uh, and, and Koufax, where you end up at the end of the game getting beaten. It's like, well, well, they beat us by one. They only beat us by one run. I mean, we're that close. But I guess Buckner had talked a lot of trash, a young Bill Buckner. And Bill Buckner was a Hall of Fame caliber player. He's not a Hall of Famer, but a Hall of Fame caliber player. Sad that he's only really remembered for the, the 86 World Series. But Buckner was doing a lot of trash talking. So in game five, what did the A's fans do? They threw a lot of trash at Bill Buckner while he was on the field. Um, there's a great quote from the Ken Burns baseball series with somebody was in, in, and this is not Bill Buckner and it was many years before the guy was in the field and people were throwing heads of lettuce at him and eggs and all of this stuff. And he said, it, it I, I didn't question why they were throwing it at me. I just questioned why they brought all that stuff to the park to start. Um, but, uh, what it did was it caused a, uh, it caused, this was in the seventh, uh, it caused a delay 
like a, a relatively long delay in between uh, between innings. Mike Marshall was on the mound at that point for the uh, for the Dodgers. Mike Marshall was devastating. He may have won the Cy point. Young that year. Yeah, I think he might have as well. Um, but uh, great, great pitcher. Well, during this entire time, um, the umpire gave Marshall the uh, green light that he could warm up. He's like, go ahead and go, you know, go ahead and get some warm up pitches in. I mean, you're allowed eight between anyway. I think he was even offered to give him others. And Marshall, for whatever reason, was like, eh, eh, that's all right. I'll just rest. Um, and so uh, on the bottom of that inning, the first batter is Joe Rudy. And on the very first pitch for Mike Marshall, Joe Rudy goes deep with the winning run from the 1974 World Series. Uh, Raleigh Fingers ends up being your MVP of that series. He gets two saves and a win in it. Um, and by the way, that Oakland team is the last Bay Area team to win a championship at home until the 2017 Golden State Warriors. That is unbelievable. Isn't that none remarkable? Of the, none of the Giants teams. Nope. Uh, the A's in 89. Uh, obviously, none of the 49ers or the Raiders because it's a neutral site right. for the Super Bowl. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, yeah, the Golden State Warriors the following year. Win in Washington. Winning in Washington. Wow. That is a remarkable thing. By the way, yes. And I, and I thought this about Garvey as well. Garvey won the MVP and Mike Marshall won the Cy Young. So they had a Cy Young Award winner on their team and an MVP. And won 102 games. No wonder my friend Tony was so full of hubris. Yeah, it's just, but it's just remarkable too. You look at that, and we talked about it. Three to two, three to two, three to two, five to two, three to two. I mean, it was a, it was a classic five-game series. It was a classic World Series that people, people don't really remember. Again, this, this A's team, people don't really remember it about. So that, that wraps up the, the seasons. Uh, 72, 73, 74 World Series seasons. Just a couple things in closing. I'm not going to follow all of these players as they go. They start to leave. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on the first one, which is Catfish Hunter, and I'll show you where Charlie Finley made an enormous mistake. Catfish Hunter had signed a contract, um, and one of the uh, conditions of his contract was that a certain amount of the money, like $100,000 or, or so, was to go into like an insurance trust for him for later um would it would relieve him of a tax burden, but it did put a ta extra tax burden on Charlie Finley, and uh, so Finley, who the language of the contract had said that this money would be paid any way the player deemed, so Hunter had all the cards in that he could pay him either cash, you know, spread it out over a year, whatever Hunter decided. This is how he had to do it. And uh, when Finley found out it was going to cost him $25,000, which, again, sounds like nothing today, yes, he balked at it, and he wouldn't do it. And so Hunter had a very smart attorney in North Carolina who said, well, he's in violation of your contract, so you're automatically a free agent. They went back and forth with all of this, and... Uh, Finley just never figured Catfish, who he had personally uh, visited many times in, in North Carolina. Um, Hunter was shot in the foot his senior year in high school, and he had buckshot in his foot and his ankle, and 
Finley was there at the hospital. Finley uh, sent him to the Mayo Clinic to get it fixed uh, after he signed Hunter. So he's really close to Jimmy Hunter. And Jim Hunter hated him like all the other players hated him. But uh, he didn't really think Hunter would do this to him. And he played his cards incorrectly. And eventually what happened was he, in the end, Finley was willing to do what Hunter asked. But at that point, Catfish was like, eh, I don't really trust this guy. New York was offering money, and that's how Catfish Hunter ended up being in New York, the first major free agent, which is interesting given that the, the free agency uh, battle, Andy Messersmith, of the just-beaten Los Angeles Dodgers, was uh, w- along with Dave McNally, were the two players who really pushed uh, Major League Baseball into the free agent era. But uh, that's how they lost Catfish Hunter. And then over the next ensuing two to three years, even though they get back to the 75 ALCS and they lose to the Boston Red Sox, it really drops off after that. Fingers ends up in San Diego. Sal Bando goes on to Milwaukee. Everybody sort of breaks up and goes elsewhere or retires and leaves. And that's really the end of the story that is the nineteen early 1970s Oakland A's. I hope people found the deep dive somewhat entertaining. And for every one of those anecdotes that I gave, the ones that I chose to give, Mark, there are four more that are equally as entertaining. Yeah, I loved this. Uh, I love the anecdotes. The anecdotes really uh, spiced this up nicely. Yeah, I know something going inside the numbers and talking about it. We don't have to go inside every game. I just thought looking at a couple games where there were this, you know, the Burt Campanaris bat throw, the Mike Andrews thing, which led to Dick Williams leaving and, and, and really a lot of bad feelings that Charlie Finley could never turn around. For that team, uh, just just some just some great stuff there, and and I the single greatest anecdote is still the anecdote about the Ken Holtzman misquoted. No doubt, no doubt, and and it's remarkable. It 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 is remarkable with that much Sturm and Drong sur- surrounding the team, and with that much you know bile at times and vindictive behavior coming from the owner and and grudge holding and bullying and everything Fist else. Fights. I didn't even bring up the fist fights. Ray Fossey gets injured again in a it trying to break up a fight. And, and 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 I mean, despite all that, and in spite of all of that, they win. They're they're one of the greatest teams of all time in terms of that you know five year period or whatever you want to say. There there's there's no getting around it. And it's 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 to me that's remarkable that in that kind of alchemy of just bitterness and hatred. And, you know, childish behavior and all kinds of misbehavior as well, that they that they can be that successful continually over that amount of time. It's uh, it's a great story. And, you know, all all the time whilst being witnessed by, you know, 12, 13, 14,000 people a game <laughs> by by tens of people, by in the tens stadium. of people who saw see all this play out. It's it's, well, uh, it's a great story. I think I think, you know, uh, on, on top of the fact that they were incredibly talented and Dick Williams was a great manager and um, and, and Alvin Dark offended people less than Charlie Finley, uh, though just slightly less. Um, I, I think Finley in some way was in, inspired the team because there was that sort of group distaste for Finley himself. And there was sort of this we're going to win despite him. And yeah, if we're- I mean. The enemies in the locker room had a common enemy, and that probably helped. Yeah, it should point out too that Mike Andrews really ended his career. He pinch hit in the um, he he pinch hit in game uh, four 
of that series against the Mets in New York. Mets fans gave him a standing ovation. Uh, but it was his last at bat in Major League Baseball. He never really bounced back from that. He was more towards the end of his career. But uh, that was uh, that that really in this whole that's kind of the linchpin of this story as far as I can see it, because driving Dick Williams out of Williams had stayed. That team may have stayed together a little more. Um, obviously, that was a good that was a good Red Sox team in 75. They might not have beaten them, but I don't think they would have dropped off as quickly. I think Williams could deal with, uh, as they call him in the book, the owner a little better. Alvin Dark turned into just really sort of a yes man for him. Uh, yeah. At a point, Alvin got fed up and, the, and, and won the team back to a certain extent because he did stand up just a little bit. But, um, you know, it's it's Jerry Jones like. I think Alvin Dark is the Bill Barr of uh, of the <laughs> Oakland A's. <laughs> just a yes man is all it is. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, Alvin Dark at the time, I had, I had a soft spot for him. He was the manager of the 62 Giants that got to the World Series and uh, got to seven games and lost by inches. And uh, and then came into the Oakland A's after Dick Williams, and you know kept the thing going, kept yeah. Williams thir- third year in a row. So, but yeah, I, I've I have I have heard these uh, you know less than flattering stories about uh, his, well, and I think he opinions. was. I, I think he was from Louisville, Kentucky, or he was a Southerner, and he had kind of those regressive Southern ideas about race. And uh, and then one of the other things that I'd read about <laughs> that I read about Dark was that he had be he had gotten incredibly religious at a point because I guess he had a horrible temper back when he was managing the Giants and everything, and he'd gotten really, really religious. And so he offended his team by um, both uh, being somewhat inept as an on-field manager because he didn't know this team very well. Remember, he took over the team three days before spring training. He had co- two the two coaches that stayed after Dick Williams left were not his guys and basically worked against him to, to a certain extent. Um, and uh, he... Uh, he, he just, you know, he was he was either not fully uh, managerially speaking, not fully under, understanding the team that he had and how to play them. And then when things would go wrong, he was just quoting Bible verse and guys just didn't want to hear that at the time that, you know, that wasn't something they wanted to hear. I wanted to jump back and tell one more funny Charlie Finley uh, story. Um that people may not know, and that is in um, in the early 1970s. Charlie Finley hired teenager M.C. Hammer, who's, oh, right, who's real right, right. Um He because Hammer was like dancing in the stadium and doing something, and Finley found him entertaining and hired him. But then he made him an executive vice president, right? And right. his job was to hang out around the players and then report back what he heard to yeah. Finley. He was a mole. Yeah, he was. Uh, they he, hired he, MC Hammer as a 17-year-old as a mole for yes. the Oakland for that early 70s Oakland A's team. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. literally, that's the thing about Charlie O. It's like, you know, yeah, there's all this list of not good things and there's this all this other list of just major innovation, right? Major success and, you know, giving certain people all kinds of a Head starts. He gave John Miller a start. He gave yeah. MC Hammer a start. You could argue. He, yeah, he just uh, he 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 was interesting. There was the dichotomy, and again, the designated hitter. He was one of the main guys behind that uh, oh, nighttime yeah. nighttime games, both during the regular season and during the World Series. Um, he could never get people into the stands in Bald in, in Oakland. He tried, uh, but somebody said, you know, Char- you just couldn't talk Charlie out of an idea. You couldn't say it was a stupid idea because he just pushed back against it. And one of the things was he wanted to get more families there. So like every Monday was 
family night and it was like half price for the parents and then just, you know, quarter price for the kids or whatever. And every one of those games was packed. But everybody turned around and said, Charlie, if you do that every that's the only game people are going to come to. No one's going to buy a ticket to another game. They're just going to bring their kids to that game. You can't do that as a consistent thing. But Finley wouldn't listen to him. That's one of the reasons that uh, it kept their attendance down. Yeah, figure. Ah, well, we'll go tonight. We'll, we'll wait till family night. Right. Yeah, we'll pay a hell of a lot less. But there it is. The 1970s Oakland A's. I, I, I recommend everybody jump in a little more and take a look at them. I look forward to your big red machine because it was that same era in baseball. Uh, here's a, one quick uh, one quick final uh, interesting anecdote is that at a point um, they wanted to trade Raleigh Fingers uh to the Reds when Marge Schott owned them. So this would have been, I think, still probably in San Diego at that point. Was it in San Diego at that point? Anyway, um, before he went to Milwaukee. And uh, Marge Schott had a clean-shaven rule. And so Finley wouldn't go. So they missed out on the, the Raleigh Fingers, who went on to have a great deal of success, obviously, in Milwaukee because of the facial hair issue. Yeah, which yeah. just... <laughs> nonsensical yeah amazing well done sir outstanding work for our first Ooh. deep dive yeah. you know you, you were the one you're the one that, that that broke the seal on this thing so i uh give you a lot of credit on that and uh it was it was an awful lot of fun and i have a you know i have a pretty high bar a pretty high bar for next week well and those that's that's Not an happy interesting that. team <laughs> that's an interesting team and you have to deal with lost world series which is yeah. something I, I I never did with 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 the A's. Um, yep. So I'll be real interested to hear about that. My dad was from Ohio. My parents followed Ohio teams, and again, along with those early '70s A's, that that big red machine, one of my first memories of baseball. Yep. Yep. All kinds of great iconic players on that team. Obviously, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, Tony Perez. Joe Morgan later on in in the uh, in the history, obviously Sparky Anderson. So should be a lot of fun. But we will we will be back on Monday, John, with our first YouTube broadcast. So right. we'll be on two platforms starting on Monday, and uh, we're all very excited about that. So what do we need to tell people, Jeff? They just need to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, my wife said you have to subscribe and you have to have your own YouTube channel to be able to comment or something on that nature. You do. If you have a Google email address, a Gmail address, then you automatically already have a YouTube account. You just have to right. log in with your email address. If you don't have a Gmail address, then uh, you do have to have a YouTube account to comment, but anybody can go watch. Yeah, you can go watch, but if you want to comment, you need that. And I've already put it up on the AFR site, uh, on Facebook, and on Instagram. And uh, the the link is right there for uh, for Monday's show. We're going to inaugurate a second platform so people, John, can listen live. And it will automatically be uploaded sort of immediately after the show. So they can either listen live and or continue to listen on the pod at their convenience. How about All that? right. Folks, uh, have a great weekend. Wear your masks. Uh, try to try to get some enjoyment out of the weekend. We will uh, we'll be monitoring what's happening. We 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 didn't have a chance to talk about it, but maybe baseball may be moving in the right direction at this point in time. It looks like the NBA is going to happen. So sooner than later, we may actually have actual sports to talk about. Whatever. On Monday, we'll be back with yet another edition of After Further Review. Mark Ferreira and John Pelkey. I'm John Pelkey for Mark Ferreira and Jeff Taylor. Have a great weekend, everybody.